It is Wednesday, March 3rd, uh, 10th, rather. This is 2000, uh, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 335. My kids have a Passover pres- present list the size of the new stimulus package. My name is Caleb Haig. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. I might buy a truck with my stimulus money. I'm Rob Van <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I know what people say. Hey, this stimulus package is horrible. And, uh, you know, possibly it is. I think Rome fell because of mistakes and uh, the U.S. might as well. With that said, I have no problem with the government giving me back the tax money that they stole from me. So I am going to spend my money that I earn. So that they can tax you again on it later. <laughs> exactly. Or, that is or exactly your, kid, right. your children's children. That is exactly right. Uh, yeah, I'm actually the stimulus money that I'm going to get is uh, probably going to go towards my my kids' present list for Passover because uh, they have a lot of stuff on there. Now I should preface this so that people don't think that uh, get the wrong impression. My wife and I don't make a whole lot of money. In fact, we don't buy our kids presents any other time of the year. We don't buy birthday gifts. We don't buy Hanukkah gifts. We don't get give gifts for any other purpose. The only time that my wife and I buy our kids presents is on Passover. Now, this has been uh, this has been strategically done by me, and the reason why is because if you ask my kids now, what's your favorite holiday? I give you one guess what they say: Passover. Yeah, that's right. Yay. I bri- I bribe my kids with gifts. I have no problem with that, and you know what? They look forward to. Passover. They don't look forward to Hanukkah. They don't look forward to Purim. They don't look forward. I mean, they look forward to them, but not like they do Passover. It's amazing. Yeah, I have no problem with the uh, bribing of the children. That's how I potty train my kids. Anyway, okay, how's it going, man? How are you doing? Well, I was just thinking what you were saying earlier about, well, what we were talking about, taxes. And I found it at Proverbs 13, 22. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So what does a gov- what does a government do? It leaves taxes. For- <laughs> it increases taxes for their children's children. Yeah, people who I mean, I wonder if this is news outside of the US cuz I we got for instance, you know, Alfred is in the uh, chat room right now and Alfred's from the Philippines. I mean, Alfred, you can tell me, do you guys have any clue of what's going on with the government stealing money from us and giving it back in the form of a stimulus? <laughs> uh, what's the thing it says it's going to lift people out of poverty oh, so yeah, 14 1400 bucks is going to help them pay bills for one month yeah not, how how is it supposed to lift people out of poverty you gotta it, it, poverty yeah all right let's stop talking about the u.s government. okay 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 right, okay I'm, I'm not a fan fine caleb fine. i'm not a fan um okay so uh let's get all this out of the way right quick uh, you can be a part of this conversation that we're going to have today by calling our comment line 253-465-3205. It is 253-465-3205. Um, we got to get a song for it. Yeah, I'm going to put the uh, I'm going to put the chat room on that. Go ahead and go make us a song if you want to. You don't have to. Um, we finally secured um, <clears throat> MessiahMatters.com thanks to the uh, wonderful donation of one of our supporters named Alex. It only, what, it only came to like, what, 1.2 million to, to acquire that? <laughs> uh, no, I, I sure hope not. But uh, now we got it. And Peso, it's, pesos. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us uh, some time to build a website. And uh, we are excited. We are excited about that. It's going to be good. Um, so thank you to our, our good friend Alex, who uh, 
who has secured messiahmatters.com for us, .org and .net. Um, so, yeah, uh, you can also shoot us an email, chagatoraresource.com, chagatoraresource.com. And don't forget to go to torahresource.com. What for? Well, as uh, we've already mentioned, Passover's coming up. And uh, you can find all sorts of great Passover uh, resources there, including uh, a uh, Haggadah, uh, order of service that incorporates Yeshua into it and all sorts of great stuff. And if you are not already, I would highly encourage you to go ahead and click that subscribe button. Why? Because it helps us. I know that sounds weird, <clears throat> but it helps us. Every single subscribe button that uh, is clicked. Uh, I think an angel gets its wings or That's something. That's right. Exactly. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, I was going to say a present comes off my kid's present list for Passover. But <laughs> yes, uh, click the subscribe button. It really does help us. I know that sounds weird, but it does. And uh, you can also click the like button on this video because uh, that helps too. Okay, let's jump into it. We said we're talking about Passover today and we're going to talk a little bit about Passover. Actually, uh, on Monday... Uh, during our planning session, that's right, we actually do plan these these uh, <laughs> these shows, believe it or not. We plan them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. Was that Chris Farley? Did he do the... <laughs> yes, it was. Anyway, we talked about we talked about some other stuff and realized that we could incorporate this all into one show. Ken asks in the uh, chat room, Ken, uh, Caleb, moving to Texas, how do I find a good congregation? Thoughts? This is a really hard question. It depends what um, area of Texas you are moving to. It depends what you're looking for as well. Um, I think finding a good Torah observant congregation, I know that there are a couple in Texas. At Lois, Lois is on the case. She's got it for you. If you can't find a Torah observant congregation, go on to Nine Marks. They have a congregation finder. At least you'll get expo expository preaching. Um, but yeah, uh, Lo Lois is Lois is on it. She'll she'll, she'll steer you. Okay, let's uh, jump into some of these uh, topics that we got here. Paul writes steer. I heard that. There you go. There you go. He's speaking in puns. <laughs> All right. Um, Paul, Paul right. I don't know. We're in a weird mood today. Paul writes in and he says, uh, wanted to inquire on Matthew nine ten. Was Yeshua and his disciple, by the way, this is right up my wheelhouse. So this is why we're talking about this first. He says, was Yeshua and his disciples participating in a Passover meal? As the text notes, Yeshua was reclining at the table in the house. The custom of reclining at the table is typically reserved for Passover celebrations as a sign of freedom. Also, continuing in verse 14, the disciples of John the Baptist were asking Yeshua why they were not fasting. Could this be in reference to the fasting of the firstborn that's observed before Passover? However... My only hang-up is that they're not in Jerusalem. So, could this be the celebration of the second Passover in the month of ER because Yeshua was on a distant journey? Numbers 9-10. Uh, Great questions. Paul is actually in our chat room today. And so, I already wrote him back and uh, gave him an answer on this. So, you can tune this out, Paul, for now. Um, but, plug uh, your ears, Paul. Yeah, plug your ears, Paul, because you've already heard this. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, this actually opens up a huge conversation that we are that we're going to base our entire show today on this on this question. And the reason why is because this uh, this is not a fault of Paul by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I thought the exact same kind of thing 
uh, about Passover and the celebration of Passover. And, and what that is, what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the end before, the, before we start into the actual question. Uh, what, what this mindset is, is that the Passover that we, the Passover Haggadah, the Passover celebration that, uh, Messianics and Jews celebrate today is the same service and the same traditions that happened in the first century during Yeshua's time. And one of the reasons that people think this is because if you look in the, uh, in the accounts of Yeshua's last supper, for instance, in Luke 22, you have a lot of different elements that go on. So for instance, you'll see multiple cups being drank. And people say, aha, see, here are the four cups that we have in uh, in the Passover Seder. And actually, I've heard teachers and even my father at times has preached about how these cups represent salvation and redemption and all these kind of things. And how uh, Yeshua is drinking this cup and it meant this. And, you know, all, so people will actually base their sermons around these uh, these kind of uh, notions of these four cups. You also have things like reclining at table. He was reclining at table, as Paul already pointed out. People say, aha, see, look here. Uh, this is uh, because he was leaning to show his freedom, as is the custom within the Passover tradition. Or you'll have, uh, you know, all, there's all sorts of different things that we can find within the uh, accounts of Yeshua. And people say, aha, see, look, they're in the Seder. And this means that the Seder that we have today actually goes back to the first century. Well, I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, most of the tradition that we have in the modern day uh, Seder uh, comes either from the rabbis trying to explain things that they've read in first century tradition or giving a meaning to something that was already in their uh, satyrs. And what I mean by that is, so for instance, let's take the perfect example is this uh, reclining at table. Reclining at table was not a Jewish custom. Reclining at table is actually a Roman custom. And the Roman custom of reclining at table was uh, the, they, they're actually rooms that were built around this custom called triclinium. The triclinium were uh, three-sided, like on three walls, you had benches, large, long benches that people could lay down and there were pillows on them. They basically lay down. The servants would come into the room from the side that didn't have a bench on it. They would perform and they would bring in all the food and whatnot. The food was uh, placed on big tape, like one big table, and people would kind of be able to dip and get things out of the different bowls. And actually, when we see the dipping uh, that Yeshua does in the uh, in the Passover. Uh, uh, stories within the uh, apostolic scriptures, uh, the dipping is not because of the tradition of dipping your parsley or anything like that. It actually has to do with Roman custom of banquets. And so I know I've been talking for a very long time. I'll let you get in here in a few seconds, Rob. Uh, to wrap all of this up, basically what happens is by the time the fourth century comes around and the Mishnah is written down, you have uh, the rabbis saying, you have people saying, well, why are we reclining at table? Well, this is actually a holdover from Roman banquet custom. It has nothing to do with freedom or has nothing to do with the Passover Seder, has nothing to do with any of that. And the rabbis say, oh, well, let's see here. The reason that we uh, the reason that we, we recline at table is because uh, uh, we once were slaves and now we're free. So in other words, they attach a meaning to it. That wasn't, that's not the original reason that they reclined the table. They attach a Jewish meaning to a Roman custom. And what is interesting about this is that they do that for a lot of the Passover Seder. In fact, the Passover Seder that we have within Jewish custom today 
is uh, pretty much almost, I would say, a, a, a significant amount of it is uh, it comes into tradition that way. It was not around in the first century. And if it was around in the first century, it was because of Roman tradition. Uh, okay, Rob, I'm going to throw it over to you because I could go on and on and on. Go. Well, I was just looking from the perspective of the the Greek verb to recline. Right. <clears throat> it's used... It's not just used for Passover right? in the apostolic reigns. For example, it's used in Mark 6, where it's describing Herod's uh, party where he was, you know, had the young girl. He's like, I'll give you, you know, whatever you want, etc. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist. And there's other other places, too, where it's clearly not Passover. I think it's, it's where... Uh, it's in John, where Lazarus and Martha are having a meal with Yeshua and they're reclining. It's not. It's not a Passover. So, um, yeah. Actually, the first the first uh, reference that we have to this is in Roman literature, four hundred years before uh, BCE. So it's not even it's not even re- religious literature. It's actually pagan literature that we see the reclining at table. Actually, pagans, pagans, um, darn pagans. So the. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the 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 interesting thing about this the, is, and we've talked. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I well, I, I was just collect. saying this. It's a great question that that he's asking because it 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 reminds me. I remember was it last? It was last week or the week before, and I don't remember who the brother was, but we had the audio, and you could hear him flipping through. And he's like, "Is this legit?" You know, and it's the same thing. It's like trying to understand the historical context for what we find in the Gospels right. or in the epistles. Like that brother was talking about Colossians. This brother's talking about a passage from Matthew. But in both instances, we have this confrontation with, "Okay, I feel like there could be some connections made, but I'm not sure how to evaluate whether the connections I'm making are legit or not." or the connections that someone is telling me that is there is legit or not. And that puts me in a pickle a little bit. It's almost like a little bit of a, it's like a mini crisis of interpretation. What do I do? Do I accept this explanation? Do I accept that explanation? Do I say, you know what? I don't know for now. What, what skills do I need to be confident? You know, it brings all that right to the forefront. Yeah, this is. There's actually uh, two different aspects of this uh, that we could talk about. Um, for I think my mind first goes to you know even the tradition of, and we've talked about this at length on this show, but the tradition of like the Afikomen, which is a Jewish tradition of finding the hidden matzah. Um, and the fact is, is that the first reference that we have to Afikomenas is actually by Melito. Who was a Christian? So it, this is a, a talking about the Passover, talking about Yeshua, talking about Yeshua, the one the, who is coming, the coming yeah, one, the Afikomenas, the coming one. And if you ask Jew, the Jews what does Afikomen mean, they don't. There's no good answer. They say, "Oh, it means dessert." That's not what it means. Afikomenas means the coming one. So it, it seems as though, and this is this is kind of reading into it, but it seems as though Judaism actually took a Christian tradition of the Afikomenas. And made it into a Jewish tradition. Now, the other thing that we can say is that, you know, one of the pushes that I've seen when we talk about these kind of things is the idea that uh, Yeshua would not have incorporated any kind of Roman custom into, into his daily life. 
<clears throat> this would have been like Hellenistic and this is bad. Anything Roman is bad. And Jesus wasn't, uh, you know, Roman. He was a Jew. And so any kind of taking from Roman culture would be bad. This is nonsense. Uh, this would be like saying I can't eat with a fork and a, and a knife because that's Western tradition as opposed to, you know, Middle Eastern tradition, which predominantly eats with your hands. or so It's just ridiculous. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, the first century Jews lived in a Roman society. And there are plenty of traditions and plenty, plenty of societal norms that everyone participated in, not just the Romans, the Jews as well. And uh, so a lot of these uh, society norms that we see happening within the first century make their way into the Jewish traditions because just like a lot of people in the Torah movement today, the Jews didn't want to say that, that anything was Roman. They wanted to say, we had it first. This is a tradition that we had because of, insert whatever you want, like insert meaning here. Um, so what was the second one that he, oh, the fast of the firstborn. I, I personally have not been able to find any uh, reference of the fast of the firstborn until much, much, much later. And, uh, just like the four cups. So for instance, rabbinical tradition has these four cups throughout the uh, Passover Seder. The idea of four cups at your Passover Seder do doesn't come around until the 10th century CE. So the this is extremely late. The, this is extremely late. We don't even find four cups in the, in the mission in the Talmud. Uh, so not that the mission in the Talmud, anyone who's listening for the first time, don't think that I'm resting any kind of, uh, faith or anything on, on the mission in the Talmud. All I'm saying is that in terms of, of time markers, where the, uh, you know, where certain things, uh, fall in history, uh, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah don't even have a reference to four cups. So, uh, if you look at the, if you look at the Passover Seder now with those kind of eyes, you see reclining at table, the dipping of the parsley, the, uh, four cups, your, uh, your Seder plate, that's a late tradition. Um, you know, all these different, the Avi Coleman, all these things, if you take those away, and this is kind of one of the things that I did before I, I compiled this, uh, this Passover Haggadah, I sat back and I, I stripped all the things away that I knew were late and kind of saw the skeleton that was there before. And it's a really interesting thing to look at because all of a sudden you realize, wow, the traditional Passover Seder that we have is just that. It's a traditional Passover Seder. And that is not to say that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It, you just need to know it is what it is. Evelyn in the chat room says, is communion Passover? Well, it uh, depends what denomination you ask. Communion would be the fellowship of the saints. And so the term communion uh, as attached to what many Christians call the Eucharist, uh, we need to separate that. So communion would be any time that believers are together. That would be communion, in my opinion. If we're talking about the Lord's Supper or what has often been termed the Eucharist, I believe that we are commanded by Yeshua to observe um, something very specific in remembrance of him. I believe it's a Passover Seder. And I think that the, this is probably one of the biggest mistakes the church has made and continues to prop, prop, uh, to continue. I'm not even going to try to say the word continues this tradition on today of a bad, a bad interpretation, I, it, it, which is really interesting because if we look at, I'm just going off the top of my head here now, Rob, sorry, stop me at any time. 
uh, if we look at really, really good Bible-believing, you know, Christian men who preach uh, the gospel, uh, truly preach the gospel, and are just, you know, giants in terms of of uh, preaching the word, uh, they all will tell you that communion is an essential part. The communion, as they see it, in other words, the Lord's Supper, as they see it, once a week or as often as possible, is a necessary part of a Christian community. And I just think that that, I think that the Lord's Supper is Passover. So it's yeah, only they're be- conflating two ideas. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, yes, get, having meals with believers is awesome. Yep. So do that as often as you can. And you can have bread and wine as often as you can too. But Pesach is a unleavened bread, right? And it's, it is a special remembrance. Um, and so it's funny. I got a, I got a handwritten letter in the mail the other day and I was like, Oh, this is interesting. I don't recognize this. I open it up and it's a Jehovah's witness invite handwritten handwritten. We get them too. With a little flight. And it says, because of the pandemic, we sadly could not come to your house, but we would like to invite you to it online. And then it's an advertisement of the Jehovah's Witness uh, Passover. Apparently they do some sort of Seder or something. So. Yeah. It's interesting because I live in on the Western side of of the state uh, and Rob is on the Eastern side of the state. We've gotten probably four of those handwritten letters. Very, I mean, Beautiful penmanship, obviously handwritten. You know how I know it's handwritten? Is because uh, it'll say, hello, my, I'd like to introduce myself or whatever. I am, you know, and then a name. And then because it rains so much on the western part of the state, our mailbox gets wet. So every single one of the letters is completely washed, <laughs> washed out because it's handwritten. <laughs> you need a new mailbox. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it might have happened true. before that. Okay, so... so uh, should we go on with Passover or should, yeah, I think. Oh, oh, I just want to say one thing, actually, just as a, just a footnote correction there in the Mishnah, it does reference four cups. Does it? I thought it was only three. It it, repre- it says four. And then it says you could, but you can drink as much as you want. As long, I think the Mishnah says, but between third and fourth cup, you're not supposed to drink any additional drinks. Uh, okay. But then what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking about then is the uh, attachment of, the meaning of each cup agreed that doesn't come yeah. around until the 10th century yeah the, the idea of the full-fledged i i stand uh, corrected yeah. everyone i i stand corrected gotta put this guy in his place from, uh, from time exactly. to time exactly well thank you for that i do appreciate it yes so the meaning of the cups comes around in the 10th century that's what i was thinking about um yeah okay um, so Paul, we talked about that. Uh, we're going to do two more and then we're going to move into a very interesting conversation. Uh, messianics. Op- so, if, so we haven't hit anything. Yeah. So if you're yet. not, if you're not enthralled yet, just wait. Lois is in the <laughs> chat room and she writes in and she says, messianics often refer to the barley offering around the week of Hag Hamatzot as first fruits. This is true. They do. And I'm not sure why they do. Anyway, let's keep going. Was it called that in biblical times, or are they creating that label with the assumption that uh, that coincided with Yeshua's resurrection and based on Paul calling him first fruits from the dead? Anything y'all know about this could be informing and equipping to the rest of us. Yeah, we've talked about this before, actually, uh, several times, I think, but that's okay. It's a great question, and it's a question that needs to continue to be uh, talked about. According to my understanding, and 
I could be wrong here, but according to my understanding, the Torah itself refers to first fruits as the uh, the festival of Shavuot, the festival of weeks. It's in connection with the festival of weeks. The reason that we have first fruits being talked about uh, as the uh, usually it's referred to as the first Omer. So this would be, and depending on how you count, right? But this would be like the day after, this would be Nisan 16. So a lot of people say, oh yeah, on first fruits, you know, or he did this on first fruits. And uh, I actually saw somebody, uh, th- this was discussed at the Evangelical Theological Society as well. Uh, I think Brent Petrie, Petrie actually discussed this. According to what I've seen, um, the reason that people call, call it this is because the, the first a sheaf that's brought in for the first Omer is technically speaking the very first fruit, quote unquote, of the right. year. Um, and so this would be the first fruit that is brought in and counted first. However, that is Le- Leviticus 23 9. It's called the Reshit Ketzirchem. The Reshit Ketzirchem, which means the first fruits of your harvest. Right. However, in terms of a festival being called or a actual time, a time or a specific time uh, within the year as referred to first fruits, this is a innovation of the Torah movement that I have, that at least that I believe. Um, I think that the Torah itself only refers to a specific day slash time as first fruits as the festival of Shavuot. And so when people within the Torah movement uh, refer to it as such, I know what they're talking about. However, I don't think that it's actually uh, legitimate to call the first Omer the festival of first fruits. Certainly it's not a festival. It's not a Chag. The first Omer is simply the first barley that is brought in and counted as an Omer. Does that make sense? You cool. with me, You with me on that? I'm here. <laughs> All right, we have a uh, we have a we have a voicemail, and uh, oh, nice, yes. And so this is you've a, got mail. You've got mail. We used we, to have a clip we, for that. Well, we used to have a song, but I think that uh, YouTube actually flagged us uh, f- for uh, copyright infringement for that song, so we stopped using it. I know, sad day. Anyway. Um, here's the, uh, yeah, maybe we should get the, uh, maybe we should get the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan clip. You've got mail. Actually, I guess that was the AOL. No, because you know what? I know this is totally off subject, but, but the original AOL said you have mail and they changed it in the movie to you've got mail. There's I like a, you've got mail better. Anyway. There's some movie trivia for you. Boom. Straight from. Messiah matters. Okay, let's listen to this voicemail. I don't know why I'm talking. Hey guys, uh, I got a question. I don't think that has been answered. I can't find an answer for it. But I was looking at a Passover Seder set, and I noticed that there's this Elijah cup that is always pretty much in just about every set. And my question is, in light of the words of Yeshua saying that John the Baptist was the spirit of Elijah for anyone who receive it, and I'm paraphrasing. How does this cup come into play with our Passover Seder? What is the connection? And should we be doing it? Because before the resurrection, how can Elijah appear for Passover if that's the belief? 
I know that, that was quiet, so you might have to crank your uh, your radio up for that. However, turn it up to eleven. This one goes to eleven. Uh, however, the point is, there's actually two points here. Number one is, should we have a Passover? There's three uh, points. We don't know what the third one is. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, the, the first point is, should we have a cup for Elijah at our Passover Seder? So that's the first thing that I'm, I'm Because you buy a set, it comes with it. What do right. you do with this right. cup? I actually have several Elijah cups in my house somewhere. Anyway. So you, so in Caleb's house, they believe in multiple Elijah theory. <laughs> uh, you, the doctrine started, of multiple. You've started it now. Um, okay. The second issue is, could Elijah actually show up before the resurrection? In other words, is there a pre-resurrection Elijah? Now, we know that there is because Elijah shows up to Yeshua, right? The, the Mount of Configuration. Uh, Transfiguration. That's what I was looking for. I knew I, I knew it didn't sound right. Transfiguration. Thank you. The Mount of Transfiguration. Um, the Mount of Configuration is where when you get a new computer, you got to go get it. Go and up. configure, yes. So <laughs> Transfiguration. Thank you very much. Um, so... Obviously, Elijah is around somehow, right? Um, but his his question's a good one. Could Elijah show up beforehand? I think that he could, and I think that he will. I think it's prophesied that the actual Elijah will show up and will... I think he might be one of the two witnesses found in Revelation. Um, anyway, that that's just a hypothesis. I certainly would not preach that. Um, but, the, but the point being, yes, I think Elijah can show up beforehand and i think that it's actually prophesied that he will before the second coming of christ with that said sh- now let's go to what do you think of that first let's let's get Rob's well, yeah, I, I think it's the idea of of memorial what i'm hearing is that there's a memorial of elijah in a traditional passover seder where there's a cup poured for him there is a seat left. Like basically, you're you've got a big table set, and there's one place that's empty. And the idea is that Elijah could show up, and you want to be you want to have your hospitality uh, on eleven, right. <laughs> right? To receive receive the herald of the coming of the Messiah. Right. Now, as believers in Yeshua, we are like we already just talked about in our last segment. Do we have segments? Kind of. In the last rambling, <laughs> there we go. Much better. <laughs> we talked about our celebration of, and like I think we cited Paul and Corinthians. You know, we we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Right. That and and with the the brother who left the voicemail, citing Yeshua's words. You know that Elijah has come, talking about John the Baptist has come, heralding the Messiah. So. In my opinion, that tradition, you could do it and say, yeah, this just reminds us that, you know, that Elijah precedes the coming of the Messiah. That's our true Passover redemption. And that, and then tie that into, and he has come already, right? And build on, bring it into the gospel message. But I lean towards not doing it. I think years ago I did it but I didn't really understand. I just knew that, oh, this is interesting. But as I've, over the years, I've reflected on that meaning. And I say, you know what? I We're affirming it's a given that he's already come in, in heralding Yeshua. And yes, 
he'll come again as one of the witnesses, but I don't see that as being part of the Passover Seder. That's, that's my opinion. So I have, and a, I might stick with it. <laughs> I have, yeah, I have a similar opinion, which is this. I think that the fact is, is that yes, the uh, Elijah is said to come before the Messiah. So in that respect, I don't think that there's necessarily anything. You're not doing anything necessarily wrong if you set a place for Elijah, saying, "Yeah, I want Elijah to come," because behind him is who? Who's coming right after Elijah? The Messiah. Now within Judaism, Elijah comes first. And then the Messiah is born. And this is why there's a place set for Elijah and not the Messiah. Because the Messiah is not a grown man. He is born when Elijah comes. This is why a seat is is laid for uh, is set for Elijah at every circumcision within Judaism. Is because the idea... Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's an Elijah chair there too. Good point. Um, so so the, the reason that they do that is because the child that's being circumcised could be the Messiah. And so Elijah could show up and sit down at the circumcision to say, aha, here's the Messiah. Well, we know that the Messiah already came. And when he comes again, when he comes his second time, he's not coming as a baby this time. He's coming with a two-edged sword, right? And so in my opinion, the idea of setting a table for a place for Elijah, that's all well and good if you want to do that. I think rather we should be setting a, a, a place for Yeshua. If we're going to set an extra place, in other words, the Messiah will come. He will come with a two-edged sword, and I want him to sit down at my Passover seder. That I think would be even more appropriate for believers. Uh, once again, I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong necessarily with with. I mean, there's no. I can't point to a specific scripture and say, "Oh, you're doing something wrong by setting a, a, ta- a place for Elijah because X, Y, Z." But at the same time, I personally think that. Uh, that tradition maybe is, uh, I don't know if, if believers should do that or not. I don't know. I, I think, leave, ask your local leader. Ask your pastor what you think you should, he thinks you should do. Okay. Um, let's address this real quick. Love is Bigger says, question, do you all both observe the Haggadah? For those who don't know what a Haggadah is, uh, at Passover you have what is called a Haggadah. It's an order of service. You go through the order of service. The Orthodox order of service, the Orthodox Haggadah is like, super thick. It's like a hundred pages or something ridiculous. It takes hours to get through. Um, I, because of this, what I did was I took the Haggadah. I took everything out of it that I thought would be rabbinic tradition and or later tradition just to see what it would look like. It was very sparse at that point. It came down to three lines. Yeah, it was <laughs> pretty much. And then I started adding in things from the, um, from the apostolic scriptures, uh, quotes from what Yeshua says, all those kind of things. And then I did put in some tradition. I put back in some tradition. I put in the Christian tradition of the Afikomenas, um, things like that. Anyway, you can find that on TorahResource.com. And it's, I just put in Haggadah, and I think that that's probably the number one thing that's going to come up in the search engine. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Michael will probably link it in the chat room here, any second if he hasn't already. All right. So all of this brings us to a very touchy subject that we've never really talked about before. Well, we talked about it on Monday, and it was an interesting conversation, and so we thought we'd talk about it again. Basically, all of this talk of tradition has come back to one thing. The idea of the Messianic movement is an interesting one in and of itself. 
People have said that we're part of the Hebrew Roots movement. People have said that we're part of the Messianic movement. And one of the things that I have realized recently is that I think one of the... So let's first talk about the Messianic movement real quick. There are people who are Jewish who are... Uh, for Dr. Michael Brown is probably one of the better examples. Dr. Michael Brown is a Jew who, by blood, who is uh, holds to basically a Pentecostal faith. He calls himself a Messianic Jew, and he calls himself. There's the Haggadah in the chat room, by the way. Um, the uh, the reason he calls himself a Messianic Jew is because he is Jewish and has found the Messiah. Hence, he uses the term Messianic Jew. That's not how most people use the term Messianic Jew today. Most people use the term Messianic Jew in the idea that they have come to uh, a faith in the Messiah and they worship the Lord in a predominantly rabbinical Jewish way. Now, what I mean by that is um, there's a synagogue service instead of a church service. It's on Saturdays. It's on the Shabbat. They go through traditional liturgy that the rabbinic the rabbinic synagogue goes through. Whether or not it's been pared down or not, who knows? Um, there are usually talits that are donned. There is kippahs that are worn. There is usually a bima, uh, like a a place to put the uh, the Torah scroll. The Torah scroll is usually paraded around at some point throughout the uh, throughout the service. It's usually read at some point throughout the service. Um, and basically the order of service is Jewish. It is, it holds to the Jewish, uh, uh, traditions. Now these traditions within the synagogue service are late. And what I was talking to Rob about is the fact that these are in fact just traditions. And one tradition is not necessarily better than other when it comes to worship. So in other words, the Baptist church down the street from the Messianic synagogue, they're going to look completely and totally different in terms of the form of worship that they have. Yet, one form of worship is not necessarily more valid than the other one is because Messianic Judaism is taking late rabbinic tradition that was not around in the first century. And basically, it's made up tradition associated with a service, just as the Baptist tradition of, or the Lutheran tradition is a made-up tradition attached to worship, right? So why is one more valid than the other? And my answer is that they're not. And this comes from someone mentioned to me, They, I said, uh, you know, I was talking to this person and this other person went by and the person I was talking to kind of did one of these and I said, you know, is there bad blood? He said, no, he just, you know, the congregation that he goes to, it's basically just a, it's just a, a Christian church with a tallit. And that got me thinking, okay, well, what's wrong with that? Is that any less valid than the Orthodox style synagogue service that you have? Because you call yourself a Messianic Jew is like, is that one and so the question is, is, do our expressions of worship, is one more valid than the other if they're all just tradition? What's your thought? From the perspective of what is acceptable worship to God, that's, that's the overall arching thing, right? Sure. Like if I'm saying, wow, if, let's say I'm on the street and I'm looking at the Baptist on one hand and I look down the street to the 
messianic. And I'm like, man, okay. They both say they love Yeshua. I just want to worship God. Where do I, how do I know which one to go to? First of all, we want to, what is acceptable worship to God? Well, Yeshua says, you know, the father seeks those who will worship him and, and spirit and truth. Not who read the Torah portion in Hebrew, right? First and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's not uh, that. So I, I hear what you're saying. You're saying that true, our worship of God is not uh, somehow lessened or improved by the style, by the traditional right. style that it takes. And I'm also hearing you say, if I'm going, if I went to a, uh, a messianic synagogue that was just no different. It's, oh, this is just like a Christian church, except there's talits. I could take that two ways. One way, positively, like, oh, they're like wanting to celebrate, you know, the Jewishness of Jesus and of the, the apostles and and um, have have an experience of a, of a something with that other you know, Middle Eastern flavor or something like that. Uh, or that it's like, oh, kind of like what I heard you say, like the other way of taking that is, oh, this is just a Christian church with Talit, meaning like these people are not, they don't even have a clue what they're doing and their worship probably is kind of stinky. Like this is kind of, this is like uh, ew, unacceptable. That's a hard attitude for the individual person. Right. Um, but you know, it, it, the church is built up of individual believers, individual, like Peter says, living stones, right. And, and each of us is a living stone. And then God builds this, this, uh, temple of worship, temple of the Holy spirit. And you could have two people at the same service that have, whether it's at the Baptist church or at the Messianic that have completely different um, relationships with God and different takeaways from that time. But, and, you know, at the Messianic, if you just went to the Messianic group, you could say you could have a person there that is just, their heart is just, is they're loving God. They're grateful to be there. They have, they have joy. They are listening to the scriptures. They're meditating on the scriptures. They are, uh, being honest about their own, uh, you know, maybe problems sharing with another person, asking for prayer stuff like that. And another person could be there going, Oh man, I'm never coming back here again. Da, 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 da. So it, it's, it's difficult. You know, we're, we're, we're all human. We have, we're all in different places. And, and so, yeah, uh, we, we want to check our own hearts but on the other hand, I have to say, you know, that I, that doesn't mean I would say, oh, if if you if there's no church around, go to the Mormon steakhouse. Yeah, of course. No, no way, right? So so it's like, well, wait a minute. What are the, where are the deal breakers then? And that's, where what okay. are the non-negotiables? And 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 how can we be confident on those? So the, for me, what I'm coming to believe is that it. And someone asked me, you know, they said we can't seem to keep the kids. The kids have grown up and now they're leaving. They're not. They're not staying in the in the messianic synagogue. And this was a while ago. This is a couple of years ago. Somebody said this to me, and I noticed that this isn't across the board. First of all, certainly not across the board. But there are certain congregations that are 
um, that are having this this issue within the Torah movement, and I think within Christianity as well. And I think one of the problems that the Torah movement has had is that the parents have come from the standard church model where the focus has been the gospel. And the parents have now come to Torah and seen Torah in light of the gospel. And this has become a beautiful and wonderful thing. And they have focused on the Torah in their worship and in their preaching and in everything else. They've focused on the Torah. But what they've missed is the centrality of the gospel first and foremost. And what I mean by that is if your kids hear about the Torah and grace is not given first, in other words, grace is not the focus point and the lens by which the Torah is seen, then the Torah is not good news. The Torah is a horrible, horrible, condemning mirror that shows you your own filth and sin and how unworthy you are. That's what the Torah is. And so when you have congregations that are centered around Torah first and not grace first, they don't preach the gospel first and foremost. What you have is children only hearing and only seeing something that looks filthy and awful to them. It's only when grace and the gospel is preached first and foremost that the Torah all of a sudden becomes a beautiful thing because all of a sudden we are able to keep it and we are able to do it in service to the Almighty God who has saved us. Now, I'm not saying that these congregations don't believe in the gospel. What I'm saying is that the focus has been ta- they're no the focus has become has come from gospel-centered church, gospel-centered congregation, gospel-centered synagogue to Torah-centered synagogue, Torah-centered church. And when that happens and the gospel is not set as the foundation of the church, then we have major problems. Not only are you going to lose the children, you're going to lose anyone who does not have the gospel first. So anyone who has not become regenerate by the Spirit through the gospel message is going to come in and see the Torah as a way of life, a set of rules, and eventually that is going to topple because they're not going to be able to keep it without the grace of the gospel. Does that make sense? Good good word. Good word. But I think I think that this goes both ways. And this is one of the reasons. But don't get me wrong, I'm not just downing on the messianic or the, or the Torah movement. This goes both ways. And the reason why is because you have this in the attractional church model. People who just want to get people in and have taken the focus off the Bible, have taken the focus off the gospel. They're just trying to get people what can we do? Let's have a movie night. Let's have a, you know, let's get people in the door and we won't really preach the gospel. We won't really preach the the word because that's going to offend people. Because we want numbers. We want numbers, and we'll get them in, and then eventually in their small groups, they'll, they'll hear the, the gospel message. And one of the reasons people think this is because, why? The gospel is offensive. It is an offensive message. And especially in our day and age when, you know, you know, society structures, you know, you're a racist because, or, you, you know, you're all these different things. I, I have a, an experience. Okay. So there was, this was ooh, pushing 25 years ago. So Caleb, I don't know if you were born yet. No. <laughs> so this is like 97, 98. So 24 years ago, I volunteered. No, actually they paid me like 10 bucks an hour or something. Like, I don't know. It was, it was a gig where I played guitar at 
this thing at the, it wasn't the Union Gospel Mission. It was at the the Central United Methodist Church downtown Spokane. So this was is your a mullet huge, flowing in the, in the wind. <laughs> this is a huge, that was 80s. That was the 80s, Rob. Uh, a huge <laughs> building that's probably 100 years old, right? Because the Methodists had money 100 years ago, right? And there, there's this huge, beautiful cathedral-style church with a full basketball court in the basement, full kitchen, a big, uh, another big room or two throughout. And they had, uh, Reverend Lang was his name. I think he's in Seattle now. This is is United Methodist. Twice a week, like Monday and Thursday nights, they had what's called the Shalom Zone. And they had local churches on rotation to come in and prepare meal. Because we're talking an industrial kitchen kind of, you know, like a, uh, and so you'd have a team of like 10 people from a certain church would come in that week and they would make two meals Monday and Thursday nights. And you'd, they would just open it to, to anyone who wanted to come and the homeless and everything like that. And the idea was social gospel is like you, what you do is you feed people and you, you create a, a warm and welcoming non-judgmental space. Right. And the idea is in so doing that, you're going to, you'll have, like you're talking about, you'll have, at some point, you'll be able to preach the gospel. So I was part of this for like two years. And I'd go down and I'd play my guitar and just while they were eating, and I just, you know, acoustic guitar with a little amplification. People come up, hey, do you know Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> you know, stuff like this. <laughs> and, uh, but what I realized <laughs> is that the, the, the vast majority of people that came they were there just for the material benefit, right? They were there for the temporal benefit. They'd, they'd already heard the gospel years and, you know, they, it, and so my question was, I, I don't know. I, I had at when, you know, how old was I then? 26, 27. I had this idea of this is an opportunity to talk to people and, and, and like reach out and, and especially people who are homeless, struggling with, poverty and all this stuff coming in. What a great opportunity. But I didn't see any lives change. Now, listen, I only had a limited, obviously there was, you know, I only had my experience because I couldn't talk to everybody every week. But I know the overall social gospel message of that, at least at that time, was part of the Methodist church was not, Gospel centered, right? The 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 message ultimately was, I th- I think you know, kind of this Marxist you know, like liberation theology idea. The idea that that the rich are the evil, and the poor are the good. And and the rich got their riches by exploiting the poor, and that Jesus is on the side of the poor. Right. So a lot of that is like, okay, well, you could find a Bible verse kinda to kind of build that little picture, but, but ultimately it's not the right message. It, it, the message of salvation is not social. It's individual first and foremost, it's individual. And at least I'm, again, I have to qualify. This is my limited experience over that two years uh, of, serving down there. 
it seems to me that the vast majority of people came because it was a hot meal and then they were gone. You know, they would, and that's it. And you have these local churches, then they're, oh yeah, we're going down to the Shalom Zone and we're going to serve the poor. So I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, I, I, I didn't see it as effective. It, imagine, you know, we're reading uh, locally here, we're reading through the Gospel of Mark leading up to Pesach. And there's where Yeshua feeds the, the thousands of people, right? And it's like, was he just feeding them? Did he just start up? Yeah, I'm just here to feed people. It was never just about feeding people. Evelyn says some people only hung out with Christ because he fed them. Yeah, I, I, th- I think what you're, I think what you're touching on, and this is one of the reasons that the, I think the Union Gospel Mission here in Tacoma, you can go and you can get a meal from them, free, free of charge. You go in and you get a full. Hearty, but you got to sit through a service. But you got to sit through a sermon, and right, right. to me, this is the point. I I'll, like that. I'll give I, you. I'll give you food. Now sit down and hear the word of God, read, because that is the power. The power is not in the preacher. The power is not in the guy who can who can uh, you know make something sound good or who who can you know that's interesting, Caleb. Because I wonder because we've got you know a longstanding UGM mission in Spokane, also literally probably what a mile or so away from this other church. It could be that the, the people are like, yeah, I go here for a meal because they don't preach at me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, and so the problem is, it's a complicated problem. I'm not trying to minimalize the complexity of homelessness and poverty and how, sure. how to share the gospel. I, obviously we, uh, on our, on our show here, you know, to our resource, we, we uh, unashamedly affirm a sovereignty of God uh, perspective but th- these are difficult issues, you know. To, to, so, so I'm reading. I'm reading a unbelievable book right now. By the way, I'm reading like five unbelievable. Every books. Caleb's like, <laughs> no. Yeah, actually, and he like, reads more. So, so the book that I'm <laughs> the book that I'm reading is actually one of the books. Two of the books that I'm reading are like that. So I'm reading one <clears throat> by Spurgeon on prayer, <clears throat> and actually, it's wow. not the book itself is not actually by Spurgeon. He, he preached. And somebody compiled his his preaching on on uh, prayer and just absolutely dynamite. It's probably one of the best books I've ever written or ever read. Ever and my, written too. <laughs> and my my wife actually is the one who said this is the best book I've ever read. You got you got to read this. And sure enough, I mean I named my second son after Spurgeon. So, um, but the other one is called the Gospel Centered Church, and um, it's by his last name's Wilson, I believe. And uh, it is absolutely phenomenal. And what he shows in this book is that the attractional church, which is, you know, um, we, Andy Stanley would be like one of the models of attractional churches. He's even said, we don't preach, we don't really uh, read the word of God because nobody wants to actually hear the word of God. And it's, that'll turn people off. I'm paraphrasing. And what and what Wilson shows in this book is that the attractional church actually has a, a huge intake through the front door, but they have just as big an outtake through the back door. In other words, it's a revolving door. They constantly have numbers and they're constantly getting new people in, but they're constantly losing people. They're either losing people because the attractional church does not actually feed uh, believers the gospel. And so yeah, I just had this funny picture of uh, like a meme, like you got fishermen and they're fishing and then they got their, their cooler in the middle of the boat 
So they put a fish, they, they catch fish and they put it in the cooler and close the lid. But what they don't realize is if there's a hole and they just swim right back out the right. bottom exactly. of Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, artists, get on it. Okay. But, but the, Mr. But the, Gonzalez. Yeah. But the point, the point is this, is that you have the, the reason that the Christians are leaving the seeker friendly church is because they're going to other churches where the, where the gospel is, they go to these smaller churches where the numbers aren't as big. And why aren't the numbers as big? Because somebody's sitting there preaching the, the, the word of God. They're preaching the true gospel. And it's not seeker friendly. And then you got other people who are leaving because they're just done with church. Like they came in, they saw, eh, it's not really for me, and they're gone. But Let's, but the rate, okay, but the but the rate of conversion from not believer who comes into the seeker friendly church and converts to believing Christian is shown in this book. It's almost non-existent. It's higher in the non-attractional church model where the gospel is preached than it is in the seeker-friendly church where you have thousands of people. That's interesting to me. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. That's 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 it. the The idea of seeker. I wanted to just zoom in on that term and like, well, like someone who's spiritually curious, like, oh yeah, I'm I'm seeking spirituality. So I'm going to go to the Buddhist place and, and then I'm going to go to this, you know, uh, new agey thing. And then I'm going to go over to this, you know, is that what we mean by a seeker? I'll, I'll go to the mosque. I'll go to the synagogue. I'll go to the, the Christian church just because I'm seeking. It, it, I don't know. I, I don't know if I like that term seeker. So, so here's uh, the thing is that, is that those kind of people, the only thing that will turn one of those people to Christ is not a limp, you know, uh, story that has no power behind it. That's not going to soften the heart and turn the person to Christ. It's just not. And that's why these people come into the seeker friendly church and they leave. The only thing that's going to change that person's heart is the word of God. It's an encounter with, with the, with, with Yeshua by exactly. the Spirit, by and that doesn't come, that doesn't even come by watching. Sorry, the chosen, right, right. It, it's or something like that. You know, I know people who uh, have liked this this video, and I have I I, I like haven't it too. Watched it, it's great. Okay, but the but the point is, it's not the Bible, right? It's not an encounter with the preaching of the Word of God. Um, so movies, and I, I don't. I, I'm talking about movies. Like I remember when I was little, that greatest story ever told, I remember it made me cry. Right. I'm, I mean, I was just a kid and I was like, wow. And so, so it's like, I don't want to discount that a movie can, can convey the core message of the gospel. Um, but, but ultimately that growth doesn't come from watching that movie over and over again. Right. Right. Or, or the passion of the Christ or something like that. Someone might, Oh, you know, which is a very Catholic painting. Right. So it, to me, it seems like the, the, the chosen is kind of a, almost like a, almost like a Michael Brown <laughs> kind of telling of the gospel. Like it's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen it. So I've seen clips of it. Um, each movie is going to be like an interpretation and a painting right but that it's not the text it's not the preaching of 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 the text so, so i i had i had a I, I had a someone send me a video of a, a guy who is uh 
he's got you know he's teaching some Hebrew word pictures. He's he uses the term uh, rabbi for you know rabbi Jesus and all this kind of stuff. But is really more of a uh, self help. He's a psychologist who does self help kind of stuff. And what I realized is people oftentimes. What the gospel does is it shines a huge light on who you are. And the first thing you got to realize is you are not worthy. You're not, there is no reason why God should have chosen you. In fact, the opposite. Yeah, if is you true. come up with a reason, yeah. you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 people don't want that. People don't want to hear, I'm no good. And we are. All of us are no good. All of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the point of the gospel. People don't want to hear that. What they want to hear is you're doing good. You're you're doing all right. In fact, God loves you just the way you are. Not only that, but God chose you and and he chose you because there's something inside of you. There's something inside of you that he saw. He saw worth within you. And that's why he wants you to live your best life now. That is a false gospel. And that's why people like it. They it's attract it's attractive to hear those things and see those things. That's what people want to be told. But in the end that's not going to hold the interest. And the reason why is because that doesn't turn the heart. What turns the heart is you are a sinner. You have sinned against the Almighty God. You are damned and you are condemned because you have sinned against the Almighty God. Now turn and repent and come unto him. And serve him. That's the gospel message. And people don't like it. People want the self-help. They don't want the they don't want the true gospel. And that's the point. All right. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. It really does help us. And we appreciate it when you do it. And uh, you can also give us a call, 253 465 It's 253 465 Send us email, chegatorresource.com, C-H-E-G-G at We will be back next week. Now, we might have to move the show an hour or two. Uh, I'm not sure. Keep a, keep an eye on it. We'll try to schedule it out so that people know what's going on. But uh, we will be back next week. Uh, yeah, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.